hey, what if? And a whole generation of Irish kids are going to go mail letters at the post office and think it's really normal to have women astronauts on the stamp. And just think what a difference that is going to make and what they think their horizons are. That was musician, scientist, and astronaut, Katie Coleman. And I'm John Lee. And I'm Martin Nutty. And you're listening to another episode of Irish Stew. Today's episode of Irish Stew is sponsored by Oum Art, where you can find original prints, jewelry, home decor, and custom gifts featuring Oum, the first written form of the Irish language. Visit oumart.com, and that's O-G-H-A-M-A-R-T.com, and listeners can save 20% at oumart.com using coupon code Irish Stew. That's O-G-H-A-M-A-R-T. Hi, folks. This is Martin Nutty with the Irish Stew podcast and saying a big hello to my mellifluous co-host, John Lee. Thank you, Martin. Great to be back on the stew. You know, the logo here for Irish Stew, if you look at it, uh, is the globe and it has these kind of lines radiating out from Ireland, sort of looking like air routes out of Ireland. Uh, to give the impression of this sort of diaspora, this global Irish conversation that we like to have here in Irish Stew. Well, today we're going off the globe, so we might have to add sort of an orbiting line around our Irish Stew globe as we bring on Katie Coleman, a former NASA astronaut with 180 days in space. Uh, if you read her resume, you think you must be talking to about 12 people that who, who uh, no one else could uh, put all those elements into into one life. It's very, very impressive, and we really look forward. Uh, Katie, before I bring you on, I just want to give you my outer space background. You know, I grew up in the era of the right stuff. I was completely fascinated with the Mercury astronauts. I followed it carefully. My, my favorite book as a kid was called The First Book of Space, uh, later, I lived in Washington, D.C., and across at the, on the mall, and across the mall was the Air and Space Museum, where I spent so many lunch breaks. I took a course at the Department of Agriculture on interplanetary geology. Awesome. Uh, and and I, this is what I remember. Like, we determined the relative age of craters by looking at the albedo, albedo off of their ejecta patterns. Now, if that means anything, I don't, I'm not sure, but that's that's what I remember. And my final little outer space thing is I once sat next to astronaut Dan Barry at a bar mitzvah. <laughs> well, Dan Barry and I used to be housemates. I, I figured you had I figured you had connections there. So uh, anyway, I just want to you know give you my personal reason for being so happy to talk to you. Well, welcome. Well, I feel very welcome, and I love the background uh, that you have there because, it, and I don't, I don't know. You so you show the lines like it looks like they're emanating out, but they're definitely emanating up. And to me, the view is really familiar and actually compelling. So I think that not only are the lines, you know, emanating out, they're actually drawing people in because I certainly felt that way every time we went over Ireland. Well, you, you certainly have the message here for Irish Stew. Let me, uh, I'll, I'll give Martin a chance to talk in a second. Let me just ask you one kind of question to open things up. Right now, I'm looking at a photograph that you posted last fall. It shows an ordinary Irish tin whistle floating in space. 
It's framed by a big circular window, and it looks down on the blue oceans and white clouds of Earth. And I thought that photo really encapsulated a lot of the reasons we wanted to talk to you today. Why that photo? Why did you post it then? What does it mean to you? Well, when I was going to go to space, you know, we're all sort of real people who have, you know, personalities and things that we love to do and hobbies. And, and I love music and I've been lucky enough in my astronaut career to meet the band, the Chieftains and Patty Maloney's son uh, actually was an intern at NASA. And, and so I knew him through the band that I played in there which was, uh, and we played at a pub like every Friday night. And so I was really lucky enough to get to, to know them. And being the astronaut band, we did actually get invited once or twice to be the local band when, when his dad would come to town, you know, on a business trip, so to speak. And so when I was going to space, it, I, I always felt very privileged to have that job. And I wanted to bring things with me that would bring other people. And so I brought a tin whistle for Patty Maloney and a very old Irish flute for Matt Malloy. And it's funny, I, I took that picture long ago, you know, back in 2011, where I, I wanted to just, you know, show them that their treasures were up on the space station. They don't really belong to me, you know, and space doesn't belong to me. I wanted them to see that, you know, music is everywhere, which is, I think, a major goal for, for the chieftains. And so when Patty passed uh, this past fall, I mean, it was a very, it's a very sad day. I mean, you think that somebody like that, a treasure, a person is a treasure in that way is always going to be there for everyone. And when he passed, I just, I wanted to remind him, uh, even though he's passed on and also everyone who loves him, that he, he's up in space still. You know that uh, that his spirit of music was everywhere, and that it's it's something that joins us together when we have you know people from a whole bunch of different backgrounds living up on a space station. We look for things that we have in common, and those things are just things that kind of like are in your heart, and they're they're just they're just you know why do you like a certain song, or why does the sound of a certain instrument or combinations of instruments just make you feel like yourself? Um, it's something that's very human, and it's just might depend on the instrument or the music, but music is something that joins us together up there. Yeah, I agree, Katie. I, th I think there's kind of this ineffable quality to music that you can't put your finger quite on, um, but it certainly draws together. But um, talking about Irish music and things Irish, um, what do you... I'm the genealogical nerd in the in the duo here. So what do you know about your Irish background? I've heard that you have Irish on both sides of your family. Your last name, Coleman, um, is obviously Irish. There's a big chunk of them down in County Cork, but also another big crew in Sligo, uh, which is up in the northwest of the country. So what do you know about that? I would say, candidly, not enough. In terms mm -hmm. of actual people, I'm a little embarrassed to admit that. And certainly in our um, in our family, we like to say that we're a quarter Irish on each side, but somehow it adds up to much more than a half. And I think that that's because you know there's just something about there's something about your country, you know, that is just makes people feel like you know they 
people, there's, there's many people who live in Ireland, you know, who are Irish, of course, but then, you know, there's people who have gone other places and yet the spirit that they bring with them is so compelling that everyone wants to hold on to that little bit that's, that's theirs. And, and that's why when I was up on the space station, it was, you know, getting to be St. Patrick's Day. And I thought, you know, who else is going to celebrate St. Patrick's Day up here, basically for all of us? And so that's why I, I made that little video. Yeah, and it's, it's special, of course. And it's funny, you, you know, you're talking about the band you play in. And uh, I think Chris Hadfield, who is uh, one of your colleagues uh, in the astronaut program, also, you know, uh, certainly made a, a very frequently played uh, video, uh, I think, doing a David Bowie song, Space Oddity. So he also... Uh, uh, traces its roots back to Ireland and isn't shy about actually showing that off and kind of, uh, you know, celebrating it. So uh, I think Irish people got a real charge out of it. It's those. true. Well, and you know, he's, he's a really, he's a wonderful person to be in a band with. We're actually, we showed up on the very first uh, day of astronaut training together on the, on the same, we, we showed, we showed up on the same day for astronaut training uh, for the class of uh, 1992. And, uh, I'm pretty sure that Chris's daughter, you know, got her doctorate over there in uh, um, in Ireland, and it's it's a place that clearly compels him. And you know, our our band's association with the chieftains was was I mean, of course, we're so lucky, and 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 I know that it's you know partly the astronaut factor um, that we get invited to play places, and at the same time, there's something magical that happens when we are together. And in fact, we went to a festival in, in Lorient. Uh, in France, a Celtic festival invited um, by Patty. They were playing there, and uh, we we you know spent about five minutes kind of rehearsing what we might do together with him. And and uh, and I said, well, Patty, when you start playing, you know, then I'll I'll just kind of like step back. And he goes, oh no, <laughs> <laughs> you step back and I stop playing. Yeah. And I'm like, but Patty, people want to hear you. He goes. Katie, people want to hear us. People want to hear people, you know, playing music together. But then when, when we're actually playing, it just is this natural thing. I mean, you know, Patty Maloney starts playing. <laughs> he just kind of start, and he just took the little whistle down. <laughs> so I jumped back in. <laughs> but, you know, they, they gave us, you know, we are an amateur band. And I think we do bring some magic. And at the same time, by saying, you know, we, you know, we like you guys and we like having you be part of our family. Um, it really gave us the courage to kind of like speak out and be who we were as or who we are as musicians. And we're still playing and certainly still thinking of, of Patty uh, and the Chieftains when we play now. Yeah, certainly when I think of astronauts, you know, I think of hyper achievers and uh, there's a danger, I suppose, you know, in your profession uh, as being seen as kind of almost like, you know, robotic in your abilities. So when you kind of see, oh, yeah, they, these are normal people that like to play music and have, have as they say in Ireland, a bit of crack. Uh, um, that's kind of, you know, uh, I think it just helps soften up the image and kind of, you know, enables to connect a bit more, which is kind of really uh, important, I would think, in your profession. But uh, I just wanted to kind of roll the clock back because I like origin stories. And uh, from what I can tell, you, you grew up in Virginia and then fetched up in MIT. Now, just to explain to listeners outside uh, of America, MIT, in my view, is probably one of the preeminent, uh, not probably, is one of the preeminent uh, universities in the United States. And its alumni list uh, listings are 
pretty awe-inspiring. So talk to me a little bit about that journey from Virginia to MIT, an academic accomplishment. It kind of goes back to my dad, who was a deep sea diver in the Navy. And so we actually moved around a bit, not an amazing bit, but a, a bit um, before Virginia. And he worked on the Sea Lab program when men first lived under the sea. So exploration was very real in our family for that, that living someplace kind of weird and kind of dangerous was considered normal. Like somebody has to figure that out. And, and he was that person. But while exploration was real, being one of the explorers was not necessarily um, something that was, you know, I thought I thought about that I thought it could be me. And John talked about, you know, the, the going the Mercury program and Gemini and Apollo and and what he thought about during those days. And for me, when I would see those images, and I, I followed it as well, and I really thought it was fascinating, but I never quite saw myself in those photos of of seven guys standing in front of an airplane. And I also didn't see myself being at a place like MIT that is considered to be the best, uh, or certainly an amazing place. And it wasn't until I was in high school in a physics class, advanced physics, where there was a bunch of guys in the class, about five or six of them. and, And we were only seven in the class. And to them, it was just like breathing these equations and how physics worked. And I mean, they barely needed to take the class. And I was like, uh, could we go back to chapter three? Cause it's something I can do, but it's not intuitive for me. And they all wanted to go to MIT and it was really clear that they, it never occurred to them that I might go. So I applied to a school like that, that seemed so much not like me because I basically wanted to show them I could get in, but I did not choose to. And then my mom being a great mom, made me go up there and look at it before I said no. And she put me on the train from Washington, D.C. up to Boston. I got off. I took the subway and ended up at this, you know, campus where the first building you see is like a building shaped like a triangle and you're like facing the tiny little point. And my tour guide that day took me around and I realized that there was a whole bunch of people there just like me, which I think is a really important realization. And, and that's why being an astronaut, I really love being able to show people that somebody like me that never thought they could do this. I mean, if this happened to me and I got to be go to MIT and I got to be an astronaut, maybe it could happen to them too. And it will just be really clear that I don't think everybody in the world has to go there. For me, it was a good place to go. But for being an astronaut, you just have to love what you do, be really passionate about it, and have it be something that NASA needs right now, which is more and more professions these days. Well, you know, uh Baby, the, the astronaut thing is interesting, but what I really wanted to talk to you about was polymer synthesis using olefin metathesis reaction and polymer surface modification. That's that's really the topic that grabbed me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> which I understand is something you uh, was part of your PhD at uh, University of Massachusetts. Even I don't even well, I do think about it, right? But and actually, but what it you know, what it's basically a chemistry. You know, I talk about physics wasn't really what I lo- what was sim- like intuitive for me, but somehow chemistry and pouring things together and it's kind of like cooking um, is is really is intuitive to me. And I loved chemistry, but I liked it when you could tell people why what you were doing was really important in a way that they could understand. And so I, I like material science. I like, I tell people a great example is like fudge. You know, you can put the same things together 
and, you know, sugar and chocolate and butter. And you can either end up with like beautiful fudge or rocks that people can't even chew or <laughs> slimy stuff that slides off the spoon in a bad way. And, and that's what material science is about. And that's actually, I think, why they hired me to be an astronaut is because we're trying to do experiments up in space. Yeah, it's something we've been finding talking to people. I'm, I have a daughter about to graduate from college, so I think about these things a lot. Uh, that, you know, those college courses or those first job experiences, they can lead you to some other thing entirely. And it sounds like that materials science was your, your entree into NASA. I mean, I think of it like, you know, you're, you're on Earth and you're just collecting, like you're, you're, you're on a journey, I think, you know, just walking and, and you, it's like in a game and you collect tools and things that you're going to need as you go along. And it doesn't mean that you're necessarily, if you collect a tool, toolbox with tools that it doesn't mean you're going to be a mechanic, but everybody needs tools. And, and so it's, you know, tools for, I mean, I feel like I learned a bunch of things there that I used a lot as an astronaut, but I had to learn new things. And it's kind of what I loved about my job was learning new things every day. What, what's, she, what's she studying, John? She's actually studying. Uh, she started off as an English major, which she's continuing, and she's moving, but she's double majoring in environmental studies, which I think has been the thing that's kind of taken on more for her. You know, she's kind of grabbed on for that the most. And, you know, and at the same time, um, to be somebody in environmental studies that can actually communicate, like what's wrong, what's important, and what we can do right now, I mean, that's an invaluable combination. She's doing a uh, her, one of her like her final project for environmental studies is actually a creative writing project around the uh, pot pelated woodpecker. Is that the this uh, ex- thought to be extinct woodpecker in Louisiana? But some people think it's still alive. <laughs> but so. you know, by by being by doing like a creative writing thing and. and let, let's say you're asking other people to write about their, you know, to, to tell them the situation, you ask, ask for their stories. Every one of them is going to come up with stories that resonate with somebody that your explanation or your scientific article was not. And that's actually how I think of, you know, the playing space is that, you know, there's so many more people that think about that space station that's over our heads right now. I think because they they saw some music happening up there and it made them go, oh, maybe maybe this is like real people up there. So can I ask? Um, no, obviously no, Martin, you are, you're at your limit <laughs> of questions. No, no questions. No, you're not, get, you're not getting away that quickly. <laughs> I've been waiting to speak to, to an astronaut my whole life, okay? So I'm ready. Latching on like grim death, you know? <laughs> um, I'm not making any comments, John. Play it safe here, but um, so you kind of slid into okay. Uh, my degree in chemistry and material science led me to a career in NASA. Now I know there was a stop off in the Air Force, but at what point do you say, "Hey, I'm going to download the application and fill out my and fill it out for uh, you know becoming an astronaut"? What triggers that? What makes you think, even begin to think, that's a possibility, you know, for most of us, most normal human beings, of which, you know, maybe I'm, uh, maybe I'm one, maybe I'm not. I was going to say, um, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, for most normal human beings, that's not really an option that uh, we consider, you know. Well, different people are going to have different triggers. And for me, it honestly never occurred to me until I met Sally Ride. 
when she came to MIT, she talked, this is right after her first flight. And I remember, you know, where I was sitting. I remember, I just, I had this like sort of memory of looking at her and she's talking about, you know, what she did, you know, to become an astronaut. And it was that she studied astronomy and astrophysics. And that, that clearly, the fact that she was really passionate about her field and, and did what she could to be good at it, um, that that resonated for me. And yet, and she had this amazing job where she got to be part of her field, but have this like adventure-like stuff. And for me, that was really a moment. And that's why whenever, you know, in my job, somebody asked me to either, <laughs> either to talk or be in a picture or whatever, um, we have more and more women astronauts these days and more and more minorities that are astronauts, but it's still never enough because you, you just don't know who's out there that needs that nudge. And for me, that nudge made all the difference. Yeah, I noticed that uh, I was just kind of being a data geek was, you know, looking at the number of people that have been in space, and I think it's approaching 600. But uh, as of this point in time, when we're talking on January 26, 2022, there's only about 72 women have been in space. And by my calculations, you're number 30, uh, as I understand it. And it's interesting, you know, uh, talking about women in science, um, you're actually the second uh uh, PhD in chemistry that we've had on the show. Ooh, who uh, else? So we had, we had a, another uh, lady on from uh, who went to Stanford and got her PhD there, who now works for Google in Dublin, but is also a travel blogger, uh, oh. a lady called Jennifer Petoff. Oh, cool. And, um, so, uh, you know, I'm not sure, you know, where we're going to stop for our next PhD mm -hmm. candidate, but... Sally Ride, you mentioned, and of course, she's the first American woman to go in space. I think she flew in 1983, seems to, you know, have opened the door to possibilities maybe that you hadn't considered before. How do we level up from only 70 of 60 going to space? How do we kind of, you know, is that, a, is that something that we should be actively doing, actively encouraging? I think so, but, you know, what will it take? Well, it's, it's what I wake up basically every morning thinking about, Martin, really, is that um, I think that women and minorities bring things to jobs, to missions, and not just space missions, that are different than other people, and, you know, not, and not, not to stereotype. But, um, you know, sometimes the ruler that we use to measure, like, oh, should we bring this person, um, is not is not one that really includes the skills that they bring. You're just not used to getting from a predominantly, you know, white male workforce. And so NASA's actually been doing an interesting job at that in terms of our, our U.S. astronauts, where they picked a new class and they said, oh, it's 50% women. And this was back in, I think, 2014 or so. And, and, and I was like, okay, but the class is only eight people. And so now four and four, so you added four new women astronauts. I mean, did you really make a difference? And I, I think I kind of thought that. And yet then the next class was pretty close to 50-50 as well. And the next class. And, you know, when I was there, it was, you know, less than 20% women. And especially in things like where, you know, some sort of fairly, you know, stereotypical male characteristics you know, in the spacesuit, you know, things like that. People would go, do you fit in the spacesuit? <laughs> I mean, I was somebody who had above average grades in every aspect of spacewalking and except for being fast because I am kind of small. And, you know, but people just didn't look at me and think 
of me as a spacewalker. And I'd be like, of course I fit in that suit. And they go, well, you know, we eliminated that small spacesuit. Do you fit in the medium? I'm like, of course I do. I mean, do you think, look at this whole me, you know, like all of it, you know, do you think that those fit in a small spacesuit? They do not. <laughs> anyway, so I'd make jokes, but people don't necessarily think to include you. And now they have a, an astronaut corps that is about 40% women. And so, and I know this is like one special case, but you know, the path is made by taking audacious steps, but steadily taking any step, I think. And, and so when they're figuring out what's the new spacesuit design for going to the moon, especially because NASA is committed to having the first woman and the first person of color be part of that crew that lands on the moon, um, you can't possibly not include their opinion because, I mean, there's just... They're just part of the, the group in such numbers. And so whether you make your voices louder because you're sort of outnumbered or you, and, you know, there's always this mix of trying to tell your story in a way that people who hadn't thought to include you can see you, which means you're trying to say, hmm, what wavelength? And I, I tried to think about it. I'm like, how will I, how will I figure out how, what to say to Martin? That's what I thought. I you know, was up all night thinking about that. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> I'd be deeply disturbed if that was the case. You know? Anyways, um, that's a long answer. But, uh, you know, I think that there's this, when you are sort of different and in the minority, you spend a lot of time either just kind of going, hey, I am here with these skills. You know, do you not see me? There's that end of the spectrum. And the other end of the spectrum is just warming your way in by making sure you're speaking in a language that people can understand. Often that language, I think, includes food and drink. I think a lot of business gets done at the pub. Mm-hmm. Not that you have to drink, but I yeah. think you got to go to the pub. <laughs> you know, uh, Martin and I don't have to work at it too hard, but if you look at our guest list, we're pretty close to a 50-50 split through our 35 or so episodes. So we, we, do, we keep it in mind, but it hasn't really been a stretch for us to find great, great women to talk to. Well, you know, that's the same as our, our podcast, really, where we don't, you know, just go, oh, okay, we need, you know, somebody, we need a woman for that. We need a person of color for that. But when we look around, I mean, and look at the interesting points of view, the ones that aren't everywhere, that's who we pick. But, you know, there's a whole bunch of of girls that are going to grow up listening to Irish stew and thinking it's really normal to listen to a PhD chemist who's a travel person, right? So I thank you for those efforts. I love the way you're thinking there. That's like thinking beyond where we've been thinking, you know, <laughs> of, of uh, like generations listening to our show. So we appreciate like you raising our sights. John, can I, can, I, can I jump in and tell you really a story that I use in almost Absolutely. every single talk? And that is that, um, I, I don't know if you know I'm on an Irish stamp. Yes, I'm, absolutely. Yes, we were, definitely would have covered that at some point. So let's talk about it now. Well, which I was just so, I mean, so honored and pleased and thrilled you know to to be and and but i talk about the person who designed the stamp that you know the irish post office said let's have a new series of stamps in honor of the 50th anniversary of the moon landing and they wanted to honor astronauts with irish heritage and so uh neil armstrong and uh and michael collins are of course going to be in that group and he said, well, I'd like to go a little further afield. I'd like to bring in some people that are still alive, and I'd like to bring in women. And so Eileen Collins and I are in that series of four stamps. 
but I actually show the the two kids of the designer and myself with the stamp in in back of us. And I say, you know, thanks to this one person who said, hey, what if and a whole generation of Irish kids are going to go mail letters at the post office and think it's really normal to have women astronauts on the stamp. And just think what a difference that is going to make in what they think their horizons are. And it's all one person that said, what if? Yeah. And it's also for Ireland, I would think, you know, it's not a country that's going to be mounting a major space program anytime soon, but that they can see, you know, someone from their heritage, their background is, is up there as well. Well, let, let's get you up there, uh, uh, Katie. You know, talk a little bit about when does the clock start ticking for a mission? You know, when, when do you start really locking in and when does it get to a week to week and when does it get to a day to day and then an hour to hour? How, how does it, what's the run up to the launch? It depends on the mission, how much time you as a crew need to get ready. And my first mission, I was one of the first people assigned in my astronaut class to a mission. And then I probably flew in about the last third of the people because it was a space lab mission. And we had 30 different experiments to learn because it was really practicing for the space station and figuring out how to, you know, how to, how to do experiments up there in that space station. We, we practiced in a laboratory in the back of the space shuttle. And so that took about two and a half years to get ready. And when you say like, when do you get to be month to month and week to week for the first mission? I think there's a certain, like, just, it's, it's so hard to believe that a real person gets to go and do this, that in some ways it just didn't feel real until those solid rocket boosters lit. In our case, it was especially true because we had seven launch attempts over 30 days. It was hurricane season. We did have one mechanical problem, but then it was hurricane season. And, and there's just, you know, you'd be like, oh, we are never going to launch. We only suited up three times, but it just led to thinking, does a real person get to do this? And so it wasn't until we're actually, you know, we're suited up, we're, we've climbed in, we're strapped in, trust in like the turkeys where they pull the straps really tight and the solid rocker, rockets actually boost. Wait, no. And the solid rockets actually lit. And we were five rookies. And two experienced people, and there was hooting and hollering. <laughs> the commander goes, settle down. <laughs> right. Just thinking of, about your uh, two flights, um, I recall on your second flight, which incidentally was commanded by the first woman uh, space shuttle commander, Eileen Collins. You seem to set a record in terms of scrub flights. I believe your first mission there was six scrub flights, which is a shuttle record, and then your second one there was three. One of them got down to seven seconds. Are you saying this is like my fault, Martin? <laughs> are you trying? Are you oh, trying to I'm get me to admit that? <laughs> I'm just wondering, you know. But uh, yeah, but uh, seven second scrub that has to be pretty. Is that devastating or disappointing? Uh, like like what happens? Well, that's actually scary, <laughs> I will say, is that, you know, basically the computers take over at 30 seconds, and this is for the space shuttle. And when that happens, you really think, okay, we are going. And you also start, you just start thinking in a different way, meaning, you know, every few seconds, something different is happening. And the thing that happens at six seconds is the main engines start. And we were sort of, we, we were saved from a, what would be, a, I think, a pretty 
hazardous situation by the um, initiative of one person. And he was a young uh, Kennedy Space Center employee whose job it was to hit the abort button um, for his system. And he saw a leak of helium. And his job was technically to wait until he saw two indications of that. But he knew what would happen at six seconds if he waited for that second indication. And so he hit the button and he aborted that launch. And if he had not, the engines would have lit, the sensor, it was a bad sensor, the bad sensor would have registered, and the engines would have been trying to set shutdown on the launch pad, which is, in, it, it's really a dangerous situation. And so the initiative, one guy, uh, kept us on the ground. And so we were... Um, you know, we were relieved. It all happens kind of fast. And, you know, basically they say, they said aborted for a hydrogen leak. And I was sitting downstairs on the mid deck um, by myself. And my, my job was to open the hatch if it was ever needed. And you can think about how we're strapped in with those kind of harnesses. They go over your shoulder and in your lap between your legs and everything is hooked up. And, and then there's, you know, oxygen hoses and, you know, different ways you're connected. And we practiced, you know, getting in and out of that, in and out of that. But part of me really wondered, like, if it was really an emergency, could I like be free of those things fast enough to do that fast enough and go open that hatch? And I will tell you that I was out of that seat. And I mean, before they could say of parts per million. And once I heard those words, parts per million, meaning tiny, 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 tiny leak, right? Um, then I was like, oh, maybe we will let the people on the launch pad open the hatch. We're talking about this incredible decision this this young uh, professional at NASA had to make, the last-minute decision, last-second decision. I can't imagine being in that spot. As you're there, let's contrast what you hear. You do a nice thing on your podcast, uh, Mission Interplanetary, about the sounds of space. So tell me about the sounds of space in two two situations. One. Uh, liftoff, and then two, when you're on the, the space station. What what are those sounds like? You know, I love talking to people who think in a world of sound, which I don't necessarily, no one's ever asked me that question, John. Um, for liftoff, it's just so loud, actually. And we are wearing, you know, helmets, and then we have a headset on that covers your ears. And, and yet it is... But I, th I think actually it's, it's so, it's so consuming, like how it, it's not that it's like, you're like, you are going really, really fast, like a hundred miles an hour before you cross the, the tower, really, you're going really fast. It's about just kind of how it just, you're being pushed so hard, like whew, off into space, you're being pushed so hard that you just realize that until those engines shut off, you are never going to stop. And it's just impossible. And it's just relentless. And, but it is really loud and just pretty bumpy, you know, and, and, you know, we, we all, we think about what we're going to do in the simulator. We're going to push that button. We're going to push that button. And then we realize that that's why they have those really big buttons in with our big gloved fingers and little kind of protective borders around them so that we don't actually by mistake, push the button next to it or not move the switch correctly. And so, you know, the, the sort of motion and sort of feeling part really drowns out with the sound is like to me, but then when the engines stop, that's when there is just this, this sudden quiet, you know, it's kind of like, Kunk. I mean, it's, it's, it does I mean, it just, there's just suddenly this void and you realize that you are in the void. And, 
everything is is different and things start floating around and um and you feel like i I felt like i've arrived and you have and and then when you're on the um the space station is it creaking beeping pinging you know does it sort of have its own kind of vibration or is it silent it's funny you know it's just thinking about just last night we we live out in the country here in massachusetts and my husband's a glass artist he works in a big barn and and i'm used to going out there you know late at night you know it'll be dark maybe i just use a flashlight so i don't feel like turning the lights on and i thought you know if they filmed like a like i'm not good at scary movies <laughs> and if they filmed like a horror movie here, I, I probably wouldn't wouldn't feel good about going out here alone anymore. And I would really hate that. I mean, so for somebody like me who's not a good scary movie person, it's amazing for me to like live in the country and walk around in the dark. Um, but on a space station, I was never worried in that way. There, there's no weird creaking. It's all kind of just, there's a lot of white noise, actually a lot of fan noise, just low level. And in fact, our speaking distance is a little bit more... I say European. And, and I felt this very intensely because, um, uh, first of all, if you're going to have a conversation, I mean, just you're closer to the person. We, when you're really going to talk about something, you just automatically sort of fly over to them. There's this sort of, you, you reach out, you sort of grab each other to study each other. If you're, because people, you know, kind of come close, you sort of grab them. And, and, you know, and then I was up there with Scott Kelly, who has an identical twin. And you just get used to this kind of closer distance. And then he went home. And his brother, Mark, came up on the shuttle mission. And I went over to talk to Mark, and I was kind of like right next to Mark. And, and he just kind of looked at me. And, and, uh, and I looked at him, and I said, you are not Scott. <laughs> <laughs> he said, nope. That's crazy. <laughs> a little bit worried. I mean, so you see that your, 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 you know, your distance is, uh, mm. is a little bit um, closer up there. And uh, what was I going to say? Oh, I was going to... But I was going to tell you about a funny time where, so there's not many times that there's an unexpected noise. And one of the times there was, I was asleep and I, I, I dreamed that there was like clanging on the roof. <laughs> and really there's not supposed to be like clanging on the roof of the space station. And it's, and if you then take that thought one step further, you're like, wow, this is really not supposed to be happening. And it took me that sort of third level of thinking to remember, oh, that's right. The space shuttle is here and they're doing a spacewalk and they're on sort of a different sleepwalk. Sleep, they're on a different sleep cycle than, uh, than we are. And so they're out there fixing stuff out there while I'm just waking up. So I guess it's all okay. That had to be a weird experience. But um, speaking of different experiences, you obviously flew two missions on the shuttle, and then there's a 10-year gap, and then you get to go to Russia, actually more specifically Kazakhstan, to fly the Soyuz up to the International Space Station, where you spend like close to six months. Talk to me a little bit about the, it sounds like very college, compare and contrast, you know, working with NASA <laughs> as opposed to... <laughs> As opposed to, you know, uh, you know, the Russian space program, how that must have been an interesting experience. I, I really loved training in Russia. And I mean, I just have to go back a step to say that, you know, it, it's about exploration. I think that people who are astronauts and cosmonauts and taekwondo and and the people who 
are making the space programs and, and even the commercial people that are, are making, you know, space more accessible to people. It's all about the fact that, you know, we're here on this planet and it turns out that when we're in orbit around this planet, I mean, that's still home too, right? Turns out that, you know, space or earth is just kind of bigger than we thought, but going further, exploring out in the universe is just a very human kind of thing. And so when I got to go and train in Russia, starting about three years ahead of my space station mission, I just really loved that. I've always been kind of a global, more international. I spent a year in Norway as an exchange student. And and I think especially as Americans where we don't always look, you know, far enough outside our borders. And and so getting that experience when I was, you know, in between high school and college really made me feel like a a citizen of the world. And and I remember this kind of lasting memory from my space shuttle flight was uh, I got back from the first one and and I went to go visit the guy who is now my husband. And I was in a taxi cab and I asked the cab driver where he's from. I said, oh, I'm from Egypt. And I just thought, oh, I was just there. <laughs> because, you know, you look down, you feel like a citizen of sort of everywhere. And so the Russians do, you know, they do things differently. They It's kind of cool to be in a country where if you go to a flea market, you're going to find cool space stuff that everybody has and is selling or, you know, I mean, just this is, this is part of, you know, Russian households because they've been in the space business just as long as we have. And so I just felt very much at home training with people that were just as excited about making space happen in as safe a way as they could. And they tend to be a little, I would say they're more practical or like in the U S you know, if that in the U S if we wanted some, some valve that like let pressure out well we design a valve that let pressure out well and the russians have a valve that lets pressure out and if you turn around backwards it lets pressure in mm-hmm. and, and so and, and they know how to replace it and 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 fix it and all those kinds of things so it's very practical um but their their love for space and exploration was really really clear so you mentioned the notion of being a citizen of the world um i think you know, some folks, when they hear that, might find it almost un-American, a little bit hippie. But it seems to me, anytime I've heard astronauts interviewed about their experiences when they go up to space, they seem to be collectively profoundly changed when they return. The whole kind of um, nation-state conflict seems to me in their conversations almost petty. And we're having this conversation today when we have Russian troops who are kind of marching up and down the border of Ukraine and making, you know, noise. But I'm kind of curious, there's obviously a rivalry between American uh, and Russian space programs. Um, but I'm guessing that kind of gets set aside, you know, once you have this experience. It's, does that gel with you? And would you say that's true about your Russian colleagues? Uh, and and you had an Italian colleague up in the space station, I believe, as well. I, I would actually disagree about the rivalry part. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, in that, you know, for longer than most people know, people who are really, their, their passion is to explore, have wanted to do this together. You know, Kennedy actually wanted to have a joint Russian-American mission way back before the moon landing. And, and so it's something that, uh, you know, I think in our hearts, I mean, you just, 
especially people who've who've left the planet and gotten to look back and, and gotten to look out, realize that, you know, we're all from the same place. And for it to be so, it, it makes it special to think about what little part of that planet you're from, but it doesn't seem to be, it just seems so, so much less important because you're on the same mission. And the International Space Station is this fascinating endeavor. I mean, it's like 16, you know, sort of major partners. And at the same time, uh, there's uh, um, many, many, many more countries that are involved in, in the space station. And I would actually put Ireland in the, in the major partner group there because it's the European Space Agency. So being, being a citizen of the world, I think is something that I can't speak for everyone, but I think all of us feel in, in some way. And, and for me personally, it's, you know, leaving earth, I always thought I'd be going to space, like I'd be going someplace else. But then when I got there, I felt like just as much of an earthling and, and I, and, and I looked, you know, home was over there, but you know, it's still home. You, you are, you, you're at home. You just happen to be a little further from earth than, than other people. So this International Space Station is actually just this fascinating endeavor where you, you think of, you can think of our crew, or we had three Russians, two Americans, and one Italian up there um, during both of the crew handovers that I was part of. And yet, you know, down on the ground, there is like 16, 17 other countries, you know, on an active everyday basis, deciding, you know, what are these astronauts and cosmonauts going to do today, tomorrow? Whose turn is it? We only have so much bandwidth, you know, who, um, whose needs are more important and do we understand them? You know, there's hundreds of people making decisions together from around the world every single day. And, and that's true for projects like the Mars rovers that are up there. Where especially now that we can put people on the same phone call, literally, and, and especially um, bringing in some virtual reality or bringing in some video where the team on the ground and the team up in space really feel together. But my, my point is that we've been having uh, a space station with countries that don't always agree about everything, uh, you know, since 19, since 2000, right? And, and I, and I really admire that. And there is actually, in fact, a, a legal uh, dispensation for the space program when there are increased tensions uh, between our countries on um, the space station and that program still can continue to go. I mean, cosmonauts are welcome here to get ready for the flights. U.S. astronauts and, and ESA astronauts, uh, European Space Agency are going to Russia. That program is continuing. And, and I think all of us could learn some lessons from that. It's, it's encouraging to know that there are these sort of international structures that continue and move forward and move on despite what all the craziness the rest of us get involved in with politics. I, I agree. And, yeah. yep. uh, and also it's, it underlines how the benefits of space travel are you know, shared with the mm -hmm. world. And I think we're at a very exciting time right now for space travel. Uh, they had space travel and space, space exploration. There's the, the web telescope uh, moving into place. There's the, uh, the recent helicopter flights on Mars. There's the talk of the return to moon, the moon, and there's billionaires in space. Uh, any of that you'd like to kind of talk on as to, as we look forward to, what the next step is in space travel and space exploration. Well, I would take it in two parts. I mean, just kind of things like the Webb telescope, you know, giving us literally new eyes on the universe. 
I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's so exciting knowing what we're going to know. And I, I, I say that from um, having on our second mission, uh, we, we actually deployed the Chandra X-ray Observatory. And that is an X-ray telescope. So the, there's sort of a family of telescopes, which is actually pretty large. But it was the first time to have a really major X-ray telescope. It had little ones that made it seem like this gonna, we're going to learn stuff. And literally everything that anybody here on the Earth knows about black holes comes from the, the information that we got from the Chandra telescope. Because it looks at X-rays as really high energy, um, you know, particles, and it, it turns out that in black holes, not only are things being sucked in, they're being spewed out. And, and so, the fact that we launched a telescope, it gave us a new way to look at things. It's almost like a, you know, a microscope on a part of the universe that we just hadn't understood. And James Webb is now going to do that for us in the infrared, in the near infrared, which is going to be astonishing. And and things like the Mars rovers. I mean, there's a family of Mars rovers. And, and the latest one is Perseverance, who the people who work on her all call her Percy. And there's, I mean, there's a real person on the ground who is commanding that helicopter to go and fly. And the, the fact that, you know, we've had rovers on Mars, but they move slowly. And now we're getting to see further afield. And the whole reason to have these rovers up there is to understand Mars more so we could decide when and how to go there as humans. So I love the fact that we, you know, we, as we get more and more technology, we learn more and we learn more about what we can do, you know, sort of together. And that really brings me to um, the things that you hear today, which I'm just so excited about, um, which is things like uh, Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic, you know, bringing people to space in, in different ways and SpaceX. And so, you know, of course, these happen to be all sort of the, the um, ideas of, it turns out to be guy billionaires. I say, where are the women billionaires? Mm-hmm. I'm very excited to see what they come up with. But each of these people is different. They each have sort of a different jigsaw puzzle that is intuitive to them and, and how to put it together, what their resources are and what their ideas are. And every one of these people, whether it's Jeff Bezos or Richard Branson or Elon Musk or somebody who we haven't met yet, I mean, they're all paving the way to space in the way that they know how. And in my conversations with these people and in my experience, they have this same spirit of exploration and, and also this same real understanding that, you know, exploring space is really all about exploring Earth as well. And, you know, I think of Richard Branson in terms of these flights, you could think, oh, three or four minutes up in weightless, what does that do? Well, a few seconds, let alone a few minutes of that view changes people. And the people that go and do that will never be the same. And Richard Branson understands that. Now he certainly understands it because he's gotten to do it himself, but he understood it before and he had the capability to make it happen. And on the ground, you know, he's, he's got, you know, ideas of what we need to do right back down here on our planet. Because once you look back and you see our planet, that it belongs to all of us and that even though we may live far away on the planet, we're all so connected and we can do things together. I mean, that's what he has in mind. That's what Bezos has in mind. And, and I think that's what e- Elon has in mind, although I think his is more slanted towards the, you know, he feels very connected to human exploration of, of Mars. And I can't speak for him, right? But that's what I see. 
And so what are the audacious steps that they take? And it's really true that, you know, they are not the government, even though their programs, you know, in many cases have been done in cooperation with the government. But because they're private companies, they can take risks with hardware, not with people, but with hardware that we can't take. And by the, when they do that, they, they sort of leapfrog all of us ahead. Every government space program comes further ahead when things are figured out and when bigger risks are taken. But the government space programs, it's harder. I mean, it's, it's people's tax dollars, you know, in, in whatever country. Um, it's, it's not just, you know, what one person or one group of shareholders wants to do. And so all of these things together are leading to some very, very exciting times. Katie, I, lo- I love hearing uh, William Shatner's reaction uh, when when he returned. He really communicated the the excitement and had that sort of look look about him of like his eyes. His his life has changed as a result of this. You know, yeah. me, me me too. And and I what I found really valuable was that um, I mean, you know, he's a person that people pay attention to, who aren't going to pay attention to actually any of the three of us, right? But they wonder what William Shatner thinks because he kind of is that personality of, you know, Star Trek in that show that was so futuristic and is now so, so, so what? So you have a little device that looks at your body and knows how it does doing medically. So you have a little device you speak into and you can reach your kid who just got on a plane and flew to Italy this morning. <laughs> <laughs> Katie, you mentioned a, an Italian astronaut. Uh, I, I tell people when I'm not pretending to be Irish, I pretend to be Italian because my wife's from Italy. T- tell me a little bit about our, our our Italian astronaut. How do they say it in Italian? You know, it's funny. Um, Paolo would actually, I mean, everything's done in English up there, except, you know, Paolo would have like a weekly, you know, phone call with uh, Italy. And, and so I actually heard Italian, you know, for six months, you know, every day. And it, so I really understood like, I understood what he was talking about, um, but I don't necessarily speak Italian. <laughs> but it was, uh, you know, I, I talk about the need to connect with your with your the people on your team. And Palos is, you know, gregarious, warm person. You just you connect in an instant. But I did realize that if I really wanted to understand how he was, um, I needed to eat some kind of meal with him. I mean, this was on the ground. We st- we got assigned together, and 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 he'd go, "Hey, so what are you doing for lunch?" I'm like, "Well, I have granola bars and water in my car. I'm just like driving to <laughs> training, right?" And he's like, "What? We eat, right?" <laughs> I wouldn't say it like that, but you know, <laughs> I make it fun. But he would just be like, "What? We gotta eat lunch." And if I really wanted to understand how he was, then I needed to eat lunch. And it was the same up on the space station where some people on our crew would just be like, they'd pick their food. That's what we call it, picking your food. You go over and get all the different envelopes of vegetables and meat or whatever you're going to do. And you, you know, warm it up and then they eat. Whereas Paolo would go, hey, eat dinner. And I was like, hey, Paolo, I'm going to be another hour at least. He goes, let me know. I mean, I don't think that Paolo was capable of eating by himself because it's just food is really meaningful. And in fact, I never had been to Italy until uh, after the mission and I was really deeply regretful that I had not understood this before when we were on the mission. Like, Paolo was a little sad about the food. And then once I went to Italy, I understood why Paolo was so sad about the food. Yeah, it's so intrinsic to Italian culture. Um, you know, the veneration, if you will, of ingredients and preparation and ritual, etc. So, uh, Anything that would come in a little packet, which I imagine is how your food is served up in ISS, must be a very sad facsimile 
of the Italian eating experience. Totally. I mean, lasagna, I think he took particular uh, offense. He's like, what? Pasta, bah, bah. <laughs> I, I just want to mention one thing. I'm not sure what this will make the cutting room floor here. And my wife will like look over. She's on the other side of the room. In the in the town where she's from, in a little bit south of Milan, there's a the neighborhood church is a fairly modern church and it's all mosaics. And uh, there's this big mosaic of an astronaut on the surface of the moon. Well, how do you say wow. astronaut? In the t- astronauto? Astronauta. So I call it the church of St. Astronauta. Astronauta. It's just a, <laughs> just a strange, just kind of surreal image of an astronaut on the moon. So I'll, I'll share that with you sometime. Well, uh, I'd love to talk to you about science fiction. I know that's something you track on your, your podcast and that sort of uh, idea of thought experiments, you know, looking ahead. What, what could this all be? We'll have to save that for phase two, I think. Okay. So uh, <laughs> I had a couple, we have a couple of listener questions uh, that okay. came in when people found out we were having you. And this is from Susan Smith in Ireland. How long does it take to calm down after landing? In other words, how long does it take to really come down to earth? Susan, I'm still working on it. <laughs> it's been about 10 years. Um, but, but seriously, um, boy, you know, I did not want to come home. Um, I, I would have stayed uh, another six months in a minute up there. I don't know if I would have stayed another couple of years, but one, it takes a, takes a good month to get good at things up there. Cause everything's floating around and flying. And especially if you're absent minded, like me, you let go of something <laughs> and you're like, oops, <laughs> I have to find it. But, um, but there's this, this feeling that you have that what you're doing is so important. And I mean, every bit of research is a step forward of understanding things, you know, understanding how liquids behave, understanding combustion and pollution and how to grow plants. I mean, these are all earth problems as well as exploration problems or challenges. And so you, I just felt like as a person who had, was getting to be really good at getting work done, I just didn't want to come home. And in the view, I mean, when I first got home, I, I didn't want to sit next to the window at an airplane because it was going to look a lot the same mm-hmm. of that sort of feeling of just being, having a bigger view. And I, there's a certain grief in leaving. Um, and, and, and for the first few days when you get home, your head is still actually in microgravity in that it's kind of spinning a little bit. They don't let us drive, okay? <laughs> too many astronauts that ran over the curb <laughs> when they got home. Um, but, you know, I would bend down and tie my shoes and the sort of whole world sort of comes with you. So it does take a little while. And we do actually some physical therapy, you know, some working out in the gym. We're actually in very good shape when we get back because we've exercised a ton up there. But we haven't really done a lot of core things like our feet are not really connected to our head. Mm. So we do a lot of things to kind of get those things connected. Like the hardest thing to do at first is to walk forward and look sideways. It's, um, yeah. People mm. walk on either side of you because you're, you're going over. No question. If you close mm. your eyes, you're really going over. <laughs> Well, we had another question from uh, Anna O'Connella from the Aran Islands, and is it kind of similar to what you're talking about now. What do you miss about space? What do you reminisce about? Maybe even what do you dream about? Well, and I don't, I don't dream in zero G anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe sometimes, but I remember when I got back, you definitely dream that way. And up there, you definitely dream up there. If you're going to just thinking about something that's happening, you're just, you're always 
flying. And I think flying is a really good word because it's not about floating around. Floating is like interesting. Flying is magical. And it's really so cool to use the touch of a finger or um, there's actually a little video you can see on YouTube that says uh, splitting hairs and gravity, where I was trying to explain to Sandra Bullock how I I helped her for the gravity movie, our crew helped her. Um, And so it was how you really could take like a a hair in your fingers and, you know, stretch it like dental floss and push it against something. And just the strength of that hair would push you across the entire space station. It's kind of cool. So I really, uh, that, 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 you know, I miss that kind of floating kind of, kind of thing. I really do. I miss the people. I miss what we kind of had together. It's, it's a special time. It's a special thing you can't undo. And we don't all know each other. And, and there's a myth that they pick each other because we'll be so compatible, but there's just a specialness. And, you know, one of our guys, Ron Garen, you know, we, we, we used to, you know, in the morning, we'd both be uh, brushing our teeth in the same place, same place at the same time, usually. And, and, one time when we got back, I looked at him, I go, you know, I just, I miss brushing our teeth together. <laughs> and with that odd intimacy of life in the space station, we have arrived at the point where we do our Seamus plug. So, Katie Coleman, astronaut, what is your Seamus plug? Ooh, I appreciate having one. I'm going to, I don't want to steal listeners from you because I, I think that listeners who like you are going to like our podcast that we have at Arizona State University. It's called Mission Interplanetary. And at the at ASU, um, we actually have a school of earth and space exploration, which is kind of cool. And I, I think that um you know, we've talked about like how cool it is to think about earth and cool it is to think about space. And if you like to study volcanoes, like why would you care whether it was one on earth or one on Venus? I mean, you just want to know about volcanoes, right? So it's got a cool school like that. And ASU also has an interplanetary initiative because there's no question that humans are going to be living somewhere else in our universe that is not the earth. But it takes some, it takes a lot of slow steps to get there. But it, it doesn't hurt to be thinking ahead. Like, what are the big questions about, like, you know, if we go to the moon, I mean, who's in charge? Like, who decides what's okay to do and what's not? And, and who gets to go? And, you know, from my point of view, there's a lot of things down here that have, you know, been male-dominated, white male-dominated. And so should we send all women to Mars? I mean, it's a question right? I mean, it's a discussion. And that is the kind of conversations that we have on Mission Interplanetary. It's a podcast that was created by a really cool guy named Lance Garavi, uh, who's a drama professor, who we have a cool segment called The Sounds of Space um, that is very cool. And uh, and then my co-host is Andrew Maynard. And he is you know, smarter and different than me in so many ways. And that's why I think we have very cool conversations because we don't, either one of us in our own ways, know everything about space or exploration or science fiction, but together, you know, we're learning stuff and we're sharing that with our listeners. So that's kind of a long plug for our Mission Interplanetary podcast, but I would throw two more things out there really quickly, um, which is, you know, of course, it's always about family. And we talked about how I'm a little Irish on each side and it makes more than a half. Well, my brother, Jamie, married a woman who is definitely of Irish heritage, both, you know, grandparents, Irish, all, all, all those things. And they have three boys who are Irish uh, dancers. 
And they're all like world level Irish dancers. And Garrett in particular was a world champion uh, a couple years in a row. And he's founded a group called Hammerstep because dancing and music and these things, it's about community. It's not about people just watching. It's about making them feel at home. And I really love, uh, I love his group. They were in the finals for America's Got Talent. And it is really amazing. These boys danced at my wedding, of course. <laughs> um, but now Garrett's in a Broadway uh, play called Paradise Square that looks like it's going to be happening on Broadway. And it is all about community and family. And, you know, when these neighborhoods in, in Brooklyn were combinations of Irish and Black and Hispanic, and, and it's about what happened and actually how dancing really brought them together. And my last uh, thing, I just, I want to ask everyone to just um, think of the world that you're in and think about who are the people that you know, all of us do it. You kind of go, oh, that person, they're like this. I know they're like this. And when they call me or I see them on the Zoom or when I see them on a talk show or whatever, um, I know what they're going to be like. I know that person. You might actually be somebody you're married to. Okay. I'm just going to say it, it really happens to every one of us in the teams that we're on and realize you can't possibly know them well enough. And as astronauts, our biggest job is to continuously, every single minute, think, what does this person bring that I don't bring? And how can I help them bring it to the team? Even if I kind of wish they were different. And it's true for us in space when we're part of a space crew. It's true in families. It's true when you're, you know, part of a community and you're trying to organize something for the school. And some people have a manner that you just wish they would, you know, do things differently or not be so loud or speak up with their, all those things, right? Well, your job is to help them bring what they have because we have problems, you know, we have challenges here on earth that we need to overcome. We have challenges for exploration and every one of us has a different way to see in and put that jigsaw puzzle together. And your point of view is really, really important, but you're never going to accomplish it alone. You're going to need the people around you, even if you don't know or particularly care for them. And so our job, like it or not, and it may not seem fair, is to, you know, Think of who could be on your team that isn't there yet. Who really gets you? Help them get you. And make sure you are getting them, so to speak. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, those profound words, the notion of helping people bring it, we are a community. I'd like to thank Katie Coleman for taking time out of her day to telling us about her story, her experiences. Um, it's been a real pleasure, and I thank you, and I know our listeners do as well. Well, hey, thanks. It was great fun. Katie, I want to thank you for taking us into outer space, bringing us back to Earth, and on your fantastic podcast, really recommend that our listeners uh, l listen to uh, Mission Interplanetary as well. But uh, you have the segment of uh, Sounds of Space, so we, we're going to end with Sounds of Space with Katie Coleman making music in outer space.
Well, Martin, I really I, I love that uh, conversation, our, our brief trip to outer space with uh, Katie Coleman. And, you know, once I got my astronaut fanboy stuff out of the way and she was off and running, there were so many great things. I, I like the opening when we looked at that picture of the uh, Patty Maloney's tin whistle floating in space, because I thought it brought together a lot of what happened afterwards. And you got from her that sense of space is there for everybody. She wanted to share space with Patty Maloney and Mick Malloy by bringing their instruments up into space, by playing them up in space. The spirit lives on. And it was a good way of highlighting her Irish-American identity. Yeah, I think what I guess I was taking away from Katie was the importance of getting people up into space with different perspectives. She is the 30th woman to go into space, so she's a... Uh, one of a small number of folks that have done that. I believe there's been something in the range of 70 thereabouts. And so everybody brings that different perspective, and that's really important. But the other thing that I took away from our conversation was this learning mindset that she has, this ability to say, I can do that. And so when Sally Ride showed up in MIT and started talking about what she was doing at NASA, her job and astrophysics, that resonated. And all of a sudden, that whole new world opened up for Katie. And clearly, it's important to her that the next generation coming along think that's a possibility for them as well. We, we've heard that in a few of our conversations, that turning point moment. Gregory Harrington going to the Dublin Horse Show and hearing the violin for the first time. And there he was. His whole uh, life changed at that moment. I thought it was nice that she was asking me about my daughter in college. I believe you got your woodpeckers or whatever. Yeah, you know, so I don't want my daughter to be upset with me because I said she was writing about the pileated woodpecker. But of course, it's the ivory-billed woodpecker. So uh, there's my correction. But of course, doesn't everybody (laughs) know that? Hey, Martin, we're always looking for a little uh, help from our our listeners. Uh, What do we recommend that they uh, help us with this time around? Well, it's really useful when our listeners feel they have multiple channels to speak back to us. And so what I want to let people know that are listening is that we have various presences on social media. And so if you are a Facebook maven, you can find the Artist Stew podcast page on Facebook. And we usually post there quite regularly. And so feel free to look up our page, comment on stuff that we post, or you can always use Messenger to send us a message directly. So we welcome feedback. Indeed we do. Irish Stew is produced by John Lee, Martin Nutty, and Bill Schultz. Editing, mixing, and mastering by Bill Schultz. Music on Irish Stew was composed and performed by Rosa Nutty, with Donald Bowens on drums, Kahalo Reardon on bass and synthesizer. For more on Rosa Nutty's music, please visit rosanutty.com. Irish Stew.